you know, I want to know the essentials. I want to be informed, but I also don't want to spend, you know, hours upon hours because everything you put out there, you have a responsibility for the energy you put into the world. And so if you put something into the world that fuels fear, anxiety, hate, that impacts people and depending on your following. So I have become more intentional, more selective about curating my own feeds, if you will. Podcast Junkies, episode 257. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're new to the show, it's the one where we seek out interesting folks in podcasting and get them to kick back their heels and talk about life, their shows, their cats, whatever else is on their mind. Last week, roughly, <laughs> we had a great conversation with Allison Williams and Darren Bidol of Newark Ventures and Audible, respectively. And something interesting we did last time, in case you missed it, is we had a follow-up conversation when that episode went live on Clubhouse, something I'm looking to do more of with future guests, past guests, coordinate, and do what I'm calling a postcast on Clubhouse. So if we're not connected, I'll make sure to provide the link to the Podcast Junkies room on Clubhouse in the show notes, as well as my profile as well. So make sure you click the link on both of those to follow me and also to be notified when we do have those postcasts. I'll also be bringing back some of the past guests into that format, so expect to hear some old and familiar voices. This week, I speak to Kimmy Culp. She's the host of All the Wiser. She's a TV and film producer, and she joins the show to talk about her background in journalism intense stories she tells on her podcast, and her struggles with bipolar disorder. As host of All the Wiser, Kimmy curates some of the most amazing stories you've ever heard, from dramatic stories of survival to unforgettable lessons on loss and love. And in this episode, we discuss her career in broadcast journalism, lessons she's learned from Diane Sawyer and Oprah Winfrey, the intimacy of podcasting and the importance of storytelling, and why everyone is hiding a little piece of themselves. Yes, including you. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 257. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite and the link will be in the show notes as well. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. One other thing I wanted to mention is in the interest of continuing to build connections with you, my listener, and expanding our podcast junkies community, I'm testing out a new app called Bunches. The URL is pretty easy to remember. It's Bunches, like bunches of grapes, bunches.chat forward slash podcast junkies, one word. We've already got about 16 folks in there that are new and have discovered the chat app. What I like about it is that it takes the conversation outside of Facebook. And for me, that's a good thing. Uh, I tend to spend less and less time in there and it just becomes a big rabbit hole and not a productive use of my time. So I'm trying to pull the community together in an environment and in a space that's more conducive to having one-off conversations specifically for fans of the show. So check it out, bunches.chat forward slash podcast junkies. And I'll also have that link in the show notes. Make sure you stay to the end of the conversation where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. Let's get a little bit wiser with Kimmy. So Kimmy Culp, host of All the Wiser. Thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm grateful to Shelby Stanger, who introduced us, who's a really awesome person. And sometimes just by virtue of introductions and, and you knowing the person making the introduction, it's almost like whoever you get introduced to by that connection, you can almost always trust it. And Shelby knows everyone on the planet. There's no one she doesn't know. So I'm like, oh, you know, talking to her and she's like, yeah, I can introduce you to President Obama. I mean, yeah, not a problem. <laughs> and I'm like, who don't you know? And better yet, the people she knows are like categorically cool and people I would want yes. to know too. So she's like never introducing you to like someone douchey. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but having a network of friends whose opinions you trust and respect is really, really helpful because it's almost like the pre-vetting is already done and you just, by virtue of the converse, of the introduction and the connection, you already know that it's going to be something meaningful. Yeah, I agree. And I'm very grateful and have a huge amount of respect for her for not only knowing 
so many people because she's fabulous, but also connecting people, which is a real value because you never know what's going to come out of a connection. It could be a really meaningful, you know, creation in the world. So cool. how did you guys meet? I'm friends with her sister. Okay. Yeah. So her sister is female entrepreneur here in LA, a badass in her own right. And I met through her sister. So yeah, they're both incredible people. How do you think about cultivating friendships and how important is that to you? I think it's incredibly important. I've always innately been a very social person. And I would describe myself as both an extrovert and introvert because I really need that that human connection. And I also need, I think, time by myself. But it is, in my relationships, it is... I love to walk, I love to hike. And, you know, when you're two hours on a hike with your girlfriend or, you know, just walking with a cup of coffee, the conversations are real, right? It's different than sitting at the whatever 40th cocktail birthday dinner. And they propel you. And I think holistically, like both professionally and personally, and to have somebody who knows and loves you, but can step outside, you know, and say, so I think you know, friendships and connection and loving supportive relationships are at the core what life is about. And that shows up in romantic relationships and familial relationships, but personal relationships for me are something that I deeply value. I'm going to direct listeners to episode 10 of your podcast, which is the one where you told your story. You sort of had the tables turned and your producer, was it Erica that interviewed you on the podcast? No, it was my friend, Holly Gordon, who's a a journalist. So she was the right person. That's her background. Something you said in that interview was that you love being in love. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean for you? Well, I think we were talking about early on And I just look like, you know, those people who always have a boyfriend in high school and college. (laughs) Yeah. Like we all know those people. And I was that person, but it was always like, so in love, like, oh my gosh, this is just, you know, like I'm listening to Sinead O'Connor and, you know, lying on the bed, staring at the ceiling. And I just think I experience the world deeply. And that includes love and first loves and, you know, all that comes at the excitement of the beginning of new relationships. So yeah, I do think someone who loves to love deeply. And I think that'll come into play as we dig in here further as people uh, learn about your background. But you went to school for journalism. So I'm wondering if you knew early on that that's a field that you were interested in or you know, when people are are young or kids are young, you know, like, I want to be a fireman, I want to be an astronaut. Like, what was going through your mind at a young age as you were getting ready to figure out what you wanted to study? Well, I was a C student, (laughs) much to my parents' dismay. I definitely, in hindsight, had a learning disability, which I now understand. But I leaned and into my core strengths, right? Because sometimes find our weaknesses, we compensate with our strengths, right? We lean into that and to go and gravitate towards the things that are natural, the things that we're good at. And I literally think it all started with one moment. And there was a project, it was probably around, you know, the end of elementary school going into sixth grade. And you had to do really, you know, pretty immersive research for that age and present and, you know, turn in this written paper. And I was convinced that I was not going to do the paper. (laughs) And I went to my teacher and I said, I would like to do my report using video and photography. And it was the time of Michael Jordan, the announcement that he was HIV positive. And at the time that issue was so hot and so misunderstood and so everywhere. And I'm like, I want to do which now I would call, I don't think I had the language to say a short form doc or, you know, which probably was a like poorly lit shot short term doc. But I'm like, this is how I want to tell the story. I want to tell it through real people. I want to meet the people. I want to bring the people to life visually. And then I want to stand in front of the class and tell you about this issue through the people who are living it. And I had a teacher, luckily, who was like, okay, like you're still gonna have to give me the index cards with like some actual writing. (laughs) And I did it. 
And it was, there was a like a hospice center specifically with patients who were dying, which also was crazy because there was all these misconceptions about contagion, right? And you did wear a mask and all that. So I went and I interviewed these people and, and I found a couple of other interviews, a woman who had been in a car accident in Brazil and had a blood transfusion. And I strung the videos together and I took pictures and I did my presentation. And I think at that point, I was just like, that's what I wanna do. Like, that is my jam. Like, that was exciting. You know what I mean? I was totally immersed in telling that story and making it beautiful and making it impactful. And so I think I knew then that that was my lane. Were you consuming anything or watching anything that inspired you? You know, I remember early on, my dad loved like 60 minutes <laughs> and we'll get into some of the, the work you did later on, but just early, you know, watching. So it was just fascinating to see. And now that I interview people, I look back and I'm like, well, I was probably influenced in some small way by watching like Barbara Walters or Mike Wallace, or just like having to sit through these at the time I thought were boring <laughs> interviews, but just understanding like that's a skill set. So I'm just curious if there's anything you were listening to or, or watching that was inspiring you that you may not have realized it at the time. I don't think I realized that. And that's a great question. My grandfather was the voice of Cleveland. <laughs> and he, for 50 years, spun records very early in the morning and in between would tell the news of the day and also just stories. And I remember going to visit and some mornings I would get up early and I would sit on his lap and watch him with a microphone and he was, you know, like smoking 17 cigarettes during the broadcast with the four-year-old on his lap. <laughs> and so, I mean, like, that's an imprint, right? Like, there's got to be something oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when I started the podcast, my mom found the old, his microphone, it's like WCRP. And it looks like it should be in a museum. I mean, it looks completely inoperable, but like the coolest antique vintagey thing you've ever seen. So I believe in that, like it's genes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Somewhere in there. So probably, I don't remember somebody who was famous, but I remember watching my grandfather and being intrigued enough by saying, can I get up and go with you, you know? Did you keep that mic? Did I keep it? Yeah, his oh, microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have it. Like everyone else during COVID, I moved and my life is in a rental or I would just pop it up right now and show you. Yeah, that's for a, a podcast, so it feels like a collector's item. Totally, totally. So out of college, you started working at NBC. Yeah. And uh, I want listeners to listen specifically to episode 10, obviously to the whole podcast, and we'll have links to all of it. But I think you tell the story, some fascinating stories just in that episode of like your early days. So just without giving too much away, can you talk a little bit about your first assignment, if I remember correctly, was a, a pretty impactful one, and then how your career took off from there? Yeah, so I started on the overnights, like fetching coffee and being verbally abused by television correspondents and anchors. <laughs> you know, it was so the deadlines, it was like, where's the facts? Give me the coffee, like wrong piece, you know, like, but that said, some people who were so wise and awesome and wonderful, wonderful bosses. But so I started in the overnights, quickly became a researcher at the time. It was nightly news with Tom Brokaw. And I oddly was assigned to Bob Hager, who at the time was the most well-known aviation and transportation correspondent. And what that means is unsexy as it sounds is every time the big marquee would be a plane crash, Bob was first on the scene, ahead of all the reporting, on the phone with the NTSB and the FAA, but also just a lot of things. Like when there was massive controversy with Firestone tires and accidents all over, mm -hmm. he was the investigative. So we had, it was actually a more dynamic news beat than one would imagine. So it's 9-11. I'm the researcher for NBC, for the top aviation correspondent, not a relatively high power job. I'm young. And we get the news. We go into the newsroom. As you can imagine, the chaos and in an organization that had very efficient systems of communication and 
a great responsibility different than today about the steps it takes to get factually backed by multiple sources information to the public. It was not as quick as it was. And that there was a whole process, right? And that is thrown out the window because our systems are crashing. We need to be informing the world. So, and every big correspondent has left the building as they should, because they're going to ground zero, they're going to the Pentagon. I was in Washington at the time. I was in New York. Oh, you were, you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you doing in New York? I lived in East Village. I used to work at downtown, like three blocks away from the World Trade Center. I would go there for lunch. It was, and I just missed. So I would op- I would turn on my TV at 8.45 every morning to check the weather before getting on the subway, because it would take me 15 minutes to get to work. And I turned it on at 8.45 and the first one had already crashed. So I was like, I just ended up sitting there watching it and just watching everything happen real time. Outside my window, I could see the Twin Towers. So I'd wake up every morning and you could see them in the distance. The reminder. And so I was watching the TV and I was staring at the window, watching TV. You know, I, I remember doing that like almost 10 times because I was like, like, is this real? Like, is this, because is, is, I, I would see it on TV and then I would see it in the distance outside the window. And then at some point we r- uh, ran up to the roof and all our, the whole building was up there. Some person brought up a telescope. <laughs> so it was definitely a wild day. So it's always interesting to hear like other people's experiences about what was happening. So yeah, definitely like continue. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you had to see that because I imagine it's something you'll never forget. And we do have all of our stories of that moment in time. You know, it's not probably unlike generations before when Kennedy was shot. You remember yeah. the exact moment. Yeah. But to have yours be so visual and, and up close. So, yeah, so the newsroom erupts into chaos. There's normally some organization and system that goes into the reporting. And they, Tim Russert at the time was the bureau chief. And it was Tim and somebody else who, you know, come out and they say, Basically, if you have something to report that the nation needs to hear, immediately stand on your desk. Because there was no other way within the computer system. We did a thing called top line, which is when it's read, it needs to go to reporting. Everything was read, right? It was like, you know, there was, so somebody quickly came up with, we need a new system. We need it now. And Mm. it's going to be as archaic is we're gonna trust the journalistic instincts in this room and stand on your desk. Obviously, there's a vetting process, right? They're gonna ask some questions. Yeah. So I'm a researcher, not really on the front lines of sharing information with millions and millions of people, <laughs> not making those calls, assisting in them. And they put me on the call with the FAA, say, we need you to listen in. Bob is in the field, his producer is with kind of everybody. So I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm taking my notes. And there was a reporter at the time who was at the New York Times and another reporter at the Washington Post. And I knew from Bob that they were the guys, they were the print guys who got it, who had the same sources he did, who were always ahead of the game, who were cautious and judicious in what they reported. So I said, I'm gonna hone in to these guys. I'm gonna be, listen deep to their questions. I'm gonna really focus on their answers and that will be my guiding post right now. And they asked a question, uh, they said, we're implementing the first ever in history national ground stop. And everyone's like, great, what's a national ground stop? <laughs> Cause that were, it had never been used. And this came from Matthew at the New York Times. And he said, every plane in this country will be grounded. They started to take the specifics. And I'm like, country needs to know this. So I stand on my desk, news erupted, like, and I just say, I have news that goes, you know, like screaming, this must go to air, you know, this must go to air. And everyone's like, what? And I'm like, there's a national ground stop. Same question, what is a national ground stop? And I'm looking at my paper, sources from, confirmed from FAA spokesperson, there is a national, every plane within the next. And then you look and it's like Tim Russert looking in the eyes of 15 million Americans saying that it's going to air, right? And that was a completely defining moment, right? That all of the sudden, Everybody in that building, they had to trust every single being, every single soul 
that we were capable, right? Mm -hmm. And we were capable because we had no choice but to rise to the moment. And they came up with a system quickly that we did. And so it was just, you know, you're changed by that. And obviously you're changed by so many of the things, all of the, with intake and news, the imagery is on a loop for days and weeks at end and edited. So I think that, you know, kind of, you have an imprint in your brain, but professionally, I'll just never forget it. It was such a big moment, a scary moment and a moment of great responsibility. Feels as you were telling it, that it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm five one. I don't even know if they'll like really see me that I like I should stand up really tall. I'm sure I have on heels. <laughs> heels on on top of a desk, you know, it's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous. <laughs> I mean, I don't I wasn't in hindsight I thought about yeah. that, but not really. But you know, you've got all these kind of powerhouses in the room and you're, you know, wobbling in your twenty two year old heels, like I've got something to bring to the nation. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a wonderful lesson and it's one of those early career moments that I think instilled a level of confidence in me and understanding about what it means to be flexible, what it means to be nimble, and what it means to rise to an occasion in the midst of tragedy. How do you think about, it feels like there's an era of journalism and reporting that feels like we may never get back to because now it's in the age of the internet and in, in the age of like, you know, how people get their news you know, that was a defining moment in terms of like, you know, everyone immediately's first response is to turn on the TV and figure out like what's going on. And that's how they felt like they could get the most available news. And I think recent news cycles, like when I want to learn something, I, I go to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Like I checked what's trending on Twitter to figure out what's breaking. So I'm wondering over the years or decades, you know, in terms of how news has changed, how you've thought of that, how you yourself consume news. Yeah, and then that prompted a question I, that I want to ask you. I tend to do a quickly brief at the beginning of the day. I used to do the daily, and then I'll do something as simple as skim, or on Spotify, I'll get my like 13-minute news of the day. I had a very hard time when with COVID and with other instances with the overconsumption of news because it made me anxious. It made me stressed. Oh, yeah. At times it made me angry, and I don't think I'm an angry person. And what I realized is, you know, I wanna know the essentials. I wanna be informed, but I also don't wanna spend, you know, hours upon hours, because everything you put out there, you have a responsibility for the energy you put into the world. And so if you put something into the world that fuels fear, anxiety, hate, that impacts people and depending on your following. And so I have become more intentional, more selective about curating my own feeds, if you will. So I tend to turn to newscasts and I almost say it with insecurity. I'm like, well, like a really evolved wise person would read the Atlantic and you know, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal and yeah. be able to talk about foreign policy in a way that but I just want to be informed without being oversaturated. And news is not really news anymore. I mean, there's so much opinion and agenda. And so I do have, to, you have to be pretty careful, I think. You mentioned you had a question for me. Okay. So, yeah. So I think a question for you is how you view podcasting. Like, it's obviously if you have a news podcast, but. We are in the media landscape. I think you could use, like where do you think it fits in the media landscape? I would say an advantage to what you and I are doing is it's not Twitter. And I think YouTube, if you somebody watches a video for five minutes, you're in the top 0.01% of. Mm -hmm. So I think there's value in the intimacy of being with someone in their ears on a long drive or walk. But how do you categorize it in the media landscape? Like, where do you think it fits in? Depends on the show, but I think what I love so much about it, I started my show in 2014. So at the time, I wanted- You were so ahead of the game. I mean, twenty. I thought it was late. <laughs> so funny, because I was like, oh man, I've waited so long, and I'm just, was I was like just a discovering podcast. <laughs> yeah, there was dinosaurs like roaming in your backyard, and you had a podcast. 
<laughs> well, I did just turn 50 last year, so um, that's been a whole other self-observation about <laughs> cycles and, uh, yeah. Life lot, chapters, that's Yeah, called. life chapters. But what I realized at the time, Kimmy, is that I was coming from corporates. I worked at, like, uh, I was in corporate for like 20 years. I worked at, like, J.P. Morgan Chase and E-Trade in marketing. I tried dabbled in like entrepreneurial stuff. So when I started my show, I was like, I want to learn about podcasting. I used to love Inside the Actor Studio. So oh, so I, good. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. James Lipton, RIP. Equally a fan. Yes, love but that. I was like, I want to do that for podcasting. So I want to tell the story of the people. Like I want podcasters to sort of like let their hair down and not be the polished on air like host that everyone hears on their on their shows, but like figure out like what's going on, why they started the show and just, you know, curiosity. And, and I did video from day one. I, I was using Skype with call recorder. So I always wanted the video. And even though, even to this day, I only use the audio, but it's, there's something about having an hour long face-to-face -face conversation with someone that you just don't get if it's just yeah. pure audio. And it opened up a whole new world for me because I came from a group like DJing, like vinyl and turntables. Like I literally have like my Technique 1200s in storage <laughs> somewhere. So let's just break this down. So you were a banker on Wall Street. You were a DJ with vinyls, yeah. <laughs> spinning records. Yes. And you fell in love with the actor studio and became a podcaster in <laughs> 1875. It's like, yes. it's fascinating. <laughs> it's so funny because I would DJ, I lived in New York City at the time, and I would DJ in like bars on Friday nights. And so the people in the bar, I would tell them I, I worked at a bank and they'd be like, I can't believe you're a banker. And then during the day, I would tell a couple of my friends that I DJ, and they'd be like, I can't believe you're a DJ. <laughs> Living like two separate lives. It's most fascinating. But DJing that. got me into yeah. podcasting because yeah. I created a mobile app and then I, you know, apologies to the listener who's heard this a thousand times, but I created a mobile app for to follow the DJs that I liked. And then I thought I was going to interview them. I, was, I thought I was going to start a podcast to interview those DJs, but changed my mind, realized how hard that was going to be. Went to a podcasting conference, saw these podcasters speak. I'm like, oh, I want to learn about podcasting. Um, podcast junkies came up because that's what I was at the time. I think I had 30 podcasts on my phone. And I was like, wow, this is a fascinating world. So, but to your question, super long-winded <laughs> roundabout answer. What was fascinating is just getting this peek inside the world of people in a way that was super intimate. And I remember finding shows that I liked early on, listening to the same host week in and week out, and inevitably they would just start revealing tidbits about their life. Like, I've done it in my show, like I had a dog, I used since passed a Yorkie, his name was Disco, so listeners would like know about him because I would take him on walks and I would talk about him and just talk about what's going on in my life, talk about <laughs> all my life changes. And so it's just, you start to get to know. And I would go to a podcasting conference and people would be like, oh, like, how's Disco doing? And I'd be like, I've just met you. <laughs> like, he literally, like, they would know more about you than you about them, yeah. which I'm sure you've, you've probably experienced as well, which I thought was fascinating. And I, I just love the fact that there's no gatekeepers. So I can listen to you know, Elon Musk on Joe Rogan just talked for three hours or Edward Snowden or Kanye West. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just thought like you can get a peek in someone's head that you can't get from like a 15 minute soundbite because people, you know, when they're on stage and they, you know, their performance hat goes on and they feel like they have to like give their polished version of themselves. And so I, I've just been fascinated by this ability to just, if you ask the right questions, and this is a sentiment that you shared because I've heard it on your show, you know, the fact how important stories are and how everyone has a story and it's the basis for, you know, why you do your show. But I always say that if you go into a bar and there's 50 people there, there's 50 stories there. You just have to ask the right questions. Yeah, yeah, great. So digging into a little bit, I'm just wondering, you've worked at, on a couple of different programs. You've worked at uh, Good Morning America, Primetime 2020, Oprah Winfrey Show. And I know it's hard to pick out specific things or moments, but I'm wondering if, if there was a consistent thread in terms of like what you were learning at the time and how you were being influenced by some of these personalities, you know, like a Barbara Walters, like a Diane Sawyer, like an Oprah Winfrey, and what from that you've carried through to now. Yeah. So I think behind the scenes is that an anchor by virtue of the title is anchored to the chair wherever they may be often in a story that demands the presence of the face of a network, they will. So a field producer is really the person who goes into the field. So we're telling stories about people all around the world. 
And part of that is, you know, you said at the beginning, you know, your job is to be curious. And that's something Diane Sawyer said to me when I was, you know, jammed up about questions and this. And and she just said, lead with your lead with your curiosity, like lead with your curiosity. So I think what I learned is, you know, you fly, you often do those interviews, you ship back those interviews. And what they often become is sort of the video that plays behind, it sets the stage. And then, you know, the person maybe walks out and there's the live interview. But so A, it's about creating safe space. You can't have an interview that touches people when they watch it on a television screen. And by the way, a great interview in person that you give a nine is a seven on television. There's a certain level of energy when it comes to filming and capturing. So it's a really interesting equation to understand. That begins with a safe space. So my job primarily was talking about people, often about difficult things. If you're not doing a press junket where somebody's like, oh, my movie's coming out. I've you know done 35 of these to promote the movie. Yeah. But a woman in Tennessee who's sharing this her story for the first time. So it's creating the safe space. And that's where you get connection. And that's where they say, I'm sitting across with somebody I trust. I'm sitting across with somebody I feel safe opening up to. It's to another, it's leading with curiosity. If I was listening at home, what are the questions that I would be asking? Sometimes those are hard questions. Everybody's wondering the thing at home and you're like, F, do I really have to say this? Like, is it the uncomfortable thing? Like, you know, your husband, was accused of, or, you know, and you're like, oh, I don't wanna say this, like I'm a good person. And so there's a certain sense of like tapping into that, like finding the strength and the, and realizing that that's a part of arc of it. So I think it's showing up with compassion. I think it's giving time ahead so they feel safe and at ease. It's very intimidating to share your story publicly and have cameras on you. I think it's a lot of listening, less talking, more listening, and just not flying in, I'm gonna do an interview, but caring about the person and being present with the person, and that's gonna show in spades. You know, one of the hard parts is when you work in those outlets, you then shut literally FedEx the tape back to New York and it's out of your control. And one thing that as I became aware became very hard for me is I showed up and gave myself, I created the safe space, I created the connection, I really worked as a human being, and now I have no control of how it'll be edited. Because some producer could be like, and tonight's story and a dramatic twist in a Tennessee case. Mm. And you're like, was that the intention, right? Was this like, so So that's a complex part of it. But there's so many people who are so good at what they do and so wise and have important conversations that change the way that people think about things. And what I learned at Oprah is, before you pitch any interview, before you begin any interview, before you have any idea, you stop and you ask yourself, what is my intention? And whether that's a product or a podcast or a service, you don't begin it without that. So, and I don't care if it's creating genes. My intention is I know women really struggle and I want them to put on a peel of jeans and just feel a little bit more confident. I want mm -hmm. them to walk a room and feel a little more confident or my product is a nutritional product, and I know I struggled with, you know, hyperglycemia, whatever it was, and my intention is to make something that was hard easier for me, something that tastes good, that makes people feel a little better. Or my intention in this interview is I don't think people fully get yet what it means to be transgender, and I wanna play my little piece in that. So starting with the intention and then realizing which we do on the podcast, is that entertain, and this is something that we see in feature film, you can entertain, you can tell a highly engaging, highly high-stakes storytelling, and at the same time, educate and inspire people. And so it doesn't have to be so altruistic, you know, like, oh, we're here to educate you on the new domestic policy, reshaping the way teachers, there is a way 
to tell an emotional story um, that you're sitting on the edge of your seat where you also walk away informed, inspired, educated. And that was the ethos we went by, which was basically educate, entertain, educate, inspire. What I love about that is if you're going to do it right, you need to create some space in between you and the moment when you start the interview. It's almost like a like a meditative, like take a 30 second meditation. Like it feels like the need to sit with that intention and give it enough time to sort of breathe. Because if you check it off, like, okay, I'm checking off what is my intention box. I'm going to rock this interview. It's very different than saying like this person has an important story to tell. I have a responsibility and an obligation to create a safe space for them and to tell the story to the best of my abilities. Like that's completely different in terms of like how you come to an interview, the presence you bring to an interview and the energy you bring to it as well. Yeah, and it's like, I always close my eyes and I'm like, how can I show, fully show up? Like how can this person feel seen, heard, and how can this be the highest service, right? And often that's listening, but that beginning, as you said, you know, it's like sitting down to business meeting and somebody pulls out, they're like, all right, well, today on the agenda, we're, as opposed to creating the space of like, you know, I'm not saying chit chat, like, you know, I'm really grateful you guys, you know, have been here. I, you know, I see the work that you're doing. And so I think the beginning, which most people don't hear in a podcast is really important. I think the intention is really important. I think the listening is really important. I think tapping into your personal curiosity, and I would extend that to human curiosity. Imagine what your listeners, what where are their brains going to be, so you can, you know, deliver something to them that answers their question and forms them. When did you realize that this is something you wanted to turn into a podcast? When did podcasts come on your radar, and how much time did you spend? sitting and preparing for like in the same way you do for an interview, I imagine you put that same intention and thought into the planning for the podcast. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Way too much planning. <laughs> I am working on uh, not, what is this? Why can't I think of the thing? Analysis is paralysis. Analysis paralysis. <laughs> so I think it's a gift that I am such a strategic person I think that there is a balance to diving in and just showing up, but I like to research my journalism background. I like to research, I like to understand. So I had produced a movie about my best friend and her husband. We started a production company with two of us and it was a much bigger lift than one would imagine, but we were lucky. We sold it at Sundance to Amazon and it took us on this wild epic journey all around the world to film festivals, but it required a lot of heart and passion and raising money and, you know, and I looked at my life and I was tired and I didn't feel like, I felt like I was missing things with my kids and that all of a sudden my values, I was very proud of the film, but I was like, I just need to take a step back and I've worked so hard and just kind of be and figure out what comes to me. And during that time, I started getting up early, which was new for me. And I would listen to a, a podcast every morning. And I'm just like, I am in love with this. And I realized, well, I've always been behind the camera. I did it for decades. You know, I interviewed people and then I put it in a box and shipped it away. I am producing and directing the film, I did the same thing. I did many of the interviews, but, and I was like, well, what if I shared my voice and captured that creative space and didn't ship it in a box somewhere, but use my editorial instincts and my commitment spoken and unspoken to the guest, and there's no barrier to entry. So I came up with the idea. I took a podcasting course called Podcaster's Paradise. <laughs> I, I did a, as well. Oh my gosh. I got a yeah. lot out of it, but the name is kind of funny. And then we did it. And I like had friends over in the backyard 
and I had my first guest stand up on a stage and tell a story and he freaking crushed it. Like, I was just like, dude, just drop the mic. You just crushed that. And said, these are the types of stories we're gonna tell and here's our intention. And like, you know, join us on this ride. You're gonna be inspired. You're gonna be educated. You're gonna be entertained. You're gonna learn more about the world. And I want you as the people I love and, you know, to be the first people who know about this. So that was like, I don't know what, you know, self-helpy that thing is, is like when accountability, like when you tell a bunch of people, you're like, oh shit, now I have to do it. (laughs) Yeah, public accountability. So that was, yeah. How did you think about like the format? How did you think about, you know, getting help? Because you have a producer that helps you with the show. How do you think about planning interviews? I'm just curious how much, because you are preparing and how far ahead you plan for episodes, just curious a little bit about what your, what the production looks like. Yeah. So we tell very, we often say unthinkable. We tell very high stakes stories, really strong beginning, middle, and an end. And most importantly, actually what is essential is that there is wisdom extracted on the other end, that people often go through incredibly messy things and find a new meaning, a new perspective on the other end of those things. And so what I like to say is there's a difference between a wound and a scar. So a wound is something that people are in the process of healing for. A scar is something that somebody can look back. An obvious email would be a veteran who would, you know, you see it and then he, you know, tells the journey of what it meant to. And so we believe that there is wisdom at the other end of those stories. And we also believe that there can be catharticism for finding that and telling them because it does make meaning of the difficult things. And it can be of great value to our listeners on many levels. And we decided to have a one-for-one charitable model, which hadn't been done, that we would share these stories. And for each story, we would make a donation to a charity. And we were going to find 50 stories and 50 charities and make an impact. And, you know, I like to believe the impact of the story is as impactful as the financial contribution, because we can deliver them assets and Nonprofits are really good at policy and creating the work. A lot of times they're not storytellers. And to get a politician on board, to get a donor on board, you have to hook them with an emotional story. So Mm. we're like, okay, let's use our skill and bring that over. So finding a story, we've covered crazy things. Solitary confinement, somebody who was wrongfully convicted and spent 10 years in solitary confinement. We just did an episode that was really popular. It was actually on sex trafficking. And the woman that we talked to, when I say the last person that you would ever cast in your mind, this articulate, bright, bubbly mother of four who flipped on our heads, sex trafficking in America and what it actually looks like and how we just did uh, Skylar Baylor who made history. He was accepted to the women's Harvard swim team. And the year before transitioned and stepped into his truth as a man and was the first division when athlete where Harvard said, we will honor your scholarship on the men's team. So we tell a lot of stories that are really dramatic, but each of those people, the what they have learned from their experience, and they're all really good at consolidating it. So the process begins with finding great stories. It requires a ton of research, and then we use a metrics, which is how compelling is this story, and it needs to be a 10 out of 10. And then there's a second metrics called the storytelling. How able is this person to deliver their story in an interview? because people have fabulous stories that you can read about in a magazine. And when you talk to them, they may be a little shy, <laughs> yeah. a little. And so we want to match those two things so our listeners get the full engagement. So that's the research project. I do that primarily. We do have a virtual assistant. We pour through videos and articles. We do a pre-interview. We make sure it's a good fit. We say, we want to support a charity. 
tell us who they are. We want to reach out immediately, let them know that this project is happening. I then spend a lot of time researching inner because that's my background. The interviews are about an hour. Then we get all the audio files. We send them to transcription. Erica, my producer, and I edit the scripts from about an hour and a half to a 40 to 50 minute piece. We send it to a sound engineer. She cleans up any audio and makes it, we want it to sound like, you know, NPR and or XM, whatever, you know, wherever you listen. Then it goes to publishing and promoting the episode on social media and writing a newsletter to promote the episode. How much time goes into each episode? I will report and get back to you. And my <laughs> guess is when I do the math, I will pass out and quit the podcast. <laughs> what does interview like that do to you energetically? That is, no one's ever asked me that. That's so good. I am exhausted. I like physically am, there was times in the past where I like scheduled a call or, you know, I don't know, like back when you could meet somebody for coffee and that was acceptable or allowed, I would be like, oh, I have a coffee date after. Or, and I feel emotionally exhausted because you have to be so present and on and focused. And, you know, when I used to work in television and film and we would pitch, you know, pilots or whatever we were, you would do two or three pitch meetings in a day and you had to walk on in the room and your energy could be nothing less than a 10 to 12. And you would do three back to back. And I remember going home and lying on the bed and being like, I can't even, it takes a lot out of you. How about you? Yeah, it depends on the person telling the stored subject yeah. matter. How do you, or do you watch to what extent you get emotionally involved in the story or the storyteller? You know, it's more of a traditional interview. I would say it's like 80% traditional interview, meaning I'm mostly listening, but certainly there's some collaboration and conversation. I do know from my background about driving a narrative arc. So sometimes you ask people a question like, you know, tell me about your childhood and all of a sudden they're like 27. And, you know, mm -hmm. and so you do have to like, you're a part of the conversation. And so guiding it, I think there's certain things that like we all relate to the things. I don't know if this is selfish or just the human condition to the things we've been through or the things that are painful or hurt or pain points for us or things that we can feel so deeply empathetic I can't just jump to the next question. So if it's something, I have three kids and a mother is telling me something that her heart broke in 10 million pieces, it's hard for me to just be like, and then you're Oh next yeah, next meeting. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I just can't, like my heart and brain won't let me, right? Yeah, so yeah. I just say like, as a mother, I'm so... I can't imagine. I am so sorry. I mean, I'm probably not going to go too far into it, my own deep story, but I may reference something, you know, I know that, you know, I will reference something if it's very relatable. And yeah, the mental health. So I have bipolar disorder. I kept it a secret for 24 years. I was deeply ashamed of it. At the time, there was a big stigma. So I said, I will keep this hidden away with a safe key. And I will cry in the shower and cry in my car and get lots of promotions at my job because they love people who, you know, work 14 hours a day and don't need to sleep that much and have lots of creative ideas. <laughs> so I made it work, right? But at the same time, I had long stretches of balance and I have a life and a life that I love. I have a you know a husband and three kids and I've found such joy in this podcasting. But that mental health piece to me, and by the way, sharing that was like the best thing ever, which was totally hysterical because I'm like, okay, I hit it for 24 years. And by now, you know, we had some solid listenership. I'm like, now I'm just gonna like throw it up on Instagram. So my ex-boyfriend's gonna be like, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> I'm like, wow, all 
after all these years, just really went for it. Can you remember the inflection point when you knew that you were going to tell the story? Well, totally. I mean, I consider myself aware of person. And the irony was like, I was explaining to somebody who doesn't listen to the podcast. And I said, our guests are categorically brave because they share hard truths. They talk about things that are hard with the right intention, which is to be of service to others, right? Because if the cancer survivor never talks about it, and if the person with mental health says, oh, I'm just gonna shy this, or the mother who has had with her, you know, pain point or loss with her kid, the whole world feels a little less alone. There's no connection. There's no now somebody reaching out and saying, I found comfort or, gosh, I got guidance or a new idea of what I can do to make this a little easier. So there's disservice in all of that secrecy and fear around having conversations around, you know, hard things. And I was like, so I asked people to talk about their hard truths. I've done that for a long time. I did it for television. Now I'm doing it for a podcast, in some cases with people I know personally. And I'm like, and I have my own total secret and I just interview people and ask them to talk about hard things, but I don't talk about mine. Yeah. And I'm like, how does that work? Like, okay, like, yeah, how does that work? Like, I interviewed you know, my best friend about, you know, her husband with ALS who lost, you know, was a professional football player and could no longer walk and talk and speak and how that changes love and romance. And, and she made us laugh and she made us cry and she was honest and I'm like, Thanks, Michelle. That was really vulnerable. And, you know, listeners learn so much, but don't ask me about my shit. Like, not, no, not for me. <laughs> so I was just kind of like, that was like, ah, I don't think that's who I want to be. I imagine you found the response was overwhelmingly positive and people really got a lot out of it. Oh, like, totally. Like, all the fears of, I'll, you know, be judged or people will be like, oh, I mean, it's almost like narcissistic to think people are going to spend that much time caring. But like, you know, people being like, oh, did you listen to that? Like, she's crazy. Or I don't know, like leaving the PTA meeting and being like, oh, is this one of the ones where she's like, you know, like crying at Safeway? You know, so all those little stories I told myself in my head, but the opposite was parents reaching out early on said is like in their 20s and saying like can you talk to my daughter can you talk to me and and i do you know it's not everybody's story this illness has a spectrum and it shows up it's very serious and needs to be taken seriously but i could also say to these moms like i've had gifts in it like i truly believe that my creativity and productivity is part of the complex chemistry of my brain and that is worth honoring. And I wish somebody would have said like, I see your pain and I see your magic and like, let's understand both. And so it just doesn't have to be this label, this disorder, we'll fix it, there's medication. It's like, let's come up with the toolkit, but let's also celebrate the gifts that comes with her complex mind and let me be an example that you can live a meaningful life and, you know, and so, and then like people at the grocery store, like I'm talking about dads in like suits who I've seen 7,000 times and whatever, they're polite, they're nice. They live in our same town, like hush hush, like in the produce aisle, like next to the heirloom tomatoes. Like, I just want to thank you. When I lived in New York in my thirties, I almost committed suicide. It's something I've never talked to. My wife asked me and I'm like, kind of, like everyone's hiding a little like oh yeah like everyone so yeah that was a really gift and it was just a gift to me cuz i spent a lot of time feeling all those shame guilt and feelings and i don't anymore and that just frees up more space to fill that headspace with things that are can fill the the world up hopefully in in more positive ways everyone's hiding a little i think that's yeah. that's Perfectly, like that's the perfect way to, to summarize it because it's, and if you are listening, I know you can relate and 
even the people who admit that they aren't are. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. And we did like, some people are hiding and some people can't hide. We did Pablo Escobar's son recently from Buenos Aires in an interview. And um, for a while he was able to change his identity for his safety because him and his mother could have been killed. And first of all, he is a lovely human being. He is a man of peace. He is a man of, he has met hundreds, if not thousands of the family of the victims of his father and had in forgiveness and responsibility, even though he's never had one act of violence in his life. So he was anonymous for many years and just got to be a dad and, you know, a small businessman and a wife and, or sorry, husband to his wife. And then Narcos came out and they found him. And so he's back into living and telling this story. So some of us have truths, we all do that we hide. And some of our guests, their hardest, darkest days are how the world defines them. They can't hide them, you know? And so their perspective and experience is different from those of us who you know, it wasn't public or, you know, the wounds live on the inside or in the brain. I feel we need a collective breath there <laughs> to process that. Because <laughs> it's something that does, you know, what you just said requires a moment to take it in and like feel into how that sits with you when you hear that and how it affects you and what that means as a listener for you personally and as a call to really dig into what stories you have that you haven't told that people need to hear. Oh, me? No, in general, just like people listening, like, you know, like I'm when like, people hear really? this. Kind of <laughs> I'm like, I just. I'm no, like, I'm I just saying, I like, when I hear you speak, like, it, I can't help but just, you know, I'm just asking myself, like, what else can I share? Like, yeah. what else needs to be shared? Because it's just, it, it's just a reminder of, like, the importance of that. Yeah, and I think there's also a reminder that nobody owes the world, you know, Brene Braun, I think says, you know, you share it to the people who've earned the right, right? Hmm. And so if you have a public platform, and part of that is, I understand the value of my in sharing my story. And now I do that I've done it. And I'm very grateful. But I don't think we should put an expectation on the world that you all have to share the warts and all have to share your darkest days like vulnerability is very much being celebrated and there's a lot of power in it but it may be as simple as sharing it with one person it yeah. may be as with your cousin with your neighbor with your now if you're a podcaster and that's your platform and connecting then you choose you know but i don't think any of us are obligated to share all of our hardest parts and all of our shadows and all of our darkness. But I think if there's the ones that have lessons on the other end, if there's ones, like I said, when I got diagnosed, they said, you'll be on medication for the rest of your life. You're mentally ill. You're, and had they also said to me, and guess what? People with this illness tend to be creatives, tend to be gregarious, tend mm -hmm. to like, you know, you're going to have a little magic with this. This is really exciting, Kimmy. And I would have experienced myself differently. I wouldn't just yeah. been like, okay, I'm mentally ill, so I will hide that. I would have been maybe more curious about that piece of myself. So I like one of my missions now is like, just talk about it in a holistic way, right? Like, because that is the truth, you know? Like, I'm willing to talk about the really hard, dark stuff, but I'm also not gonna shy away from the pieces that have allowed me to experience the world very deeply because I believe there's a gift in that. What's one preconceived notion that people have about being bipolar? I think the media, like if you look at Homeland and Carrie and, you know, I talked about this recently, but like, you know, she's in a foreign country and she's off her medications and she slept with 17 people and, you know, she's like locked up that this kind of notion of like crazy or that there maybe it gets, you know, like 
lumped in people can relate to depression and anxiety but you say something like bipolar and maybe people like oh is that more like schizophrenic are they having delusions are they having and people are right people are committing suicide people are but that doesn't equate equate to everyone and there are symptoms you know that i have rapid speech is one you're mind becomes unquiet and it's hard to explain to somebody who doesn't experience, but your mind is moving so quickly that to be honest, it won't stop and it's exhaustive, but not exhaustive. Like you're going to fall asleep. It's as if you have adrenaline, people are, you're being shot up with adrenaline. And so people have a tendency to speak quicker, spend more money, sometimes make reckless decisions People can be over-sexualized. If you look historically, a lot of artists, a lot of entrepreneurs have some form of it. There's less need for sleep. There's less need for food there. And so some of that, like when I did have a manic episode and I was working at a television network, I was a road warrior. And so it was like, we need you to go to this country. And I'm like, sure. Like, and I don't care about the time change. I'll wake up at 3 a.m. for the press conference. And guess what? I felt like I had adrenaline. So I'm like, I'll work a 16 hour days. And by the way, I came up with this creative idea, which may look on my notebook like it was like a little bit, but guess what? It's a really good idea. <laughs> and by the way, I haven't eaten. So I've lost, you know, 10 pounds. And everyone's like, you look amazing. Dude, you're crushing work. Like, I don't know how you do it. You were in New York and you were here and you were there and like you pitched that idea. I heard they're doing a two-part segment. And so if you're not aware, you can almost be like the outside world is like applauding, right? Because those are a lot of, and then if you are aware, you understand that a crash will follow and a crash is painful and a crash is isolating and a crash is the opposite of that. So I have had those experiences in my life, not all of those symptoms, like the spending, the hypersexuality, all of that, like has never been kind of my thing. It's lack of speech and not lack of the quickening of speech, the rapid thinking, less food, those kind of more of those tendencies. So I've had those episodes, but here's the deal. When you are on your medication, when you take care of yourself, when you do all the right things, my life looks pretty darn normal. My brain is pretty active, not pretty. My brain is can be exhausting and it comes with anxiety, but my life, I like my life. I wouldn't trade it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of what you're saying is resonating. I've never been formally diagnosed, but some of the symptoms like the, the mind that can't shut off is like the number one thing for me right now like literally like the only time i get a break is when i go to sleep or i have a glass of wine or i take an edible (laughs) i can relate i'm like sleep or wine like yeah uh, yeah that's uh well i feel like i could talk to you for a long time i appreciate um you sharing your story just a, a couple more questions as i wrap up What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh, what's something I've changed my mind about recently? We moved, we changed our mind about where we wanna live and how we wanna live. We staying in the same neighborhood. I had a really very ambitious business plan related to the podcast and growing another business. And I looked at my calendar and realized I was going back to that tendency of, and how that's not who I wanna be. And I just changed my mind and I said, I'm going to literally remove that, remove that, remove that, what is essential. And that was a change of mind because that's a habit that's been ingrained in me. And, and I had to call people I had hired like a publicist to work with for two months. And I was like, I don't want to disappoint her. I had hired her. She's a friend. And I just called and said, I need to focus on engaging with my audience and building this digital course with, you know, my best friend and showing up and leaning into these interviews and loving my family. And 
I'm going to circle back when this makes sense. And so that's new for me to let go of the perfectionism and the needing to do it all at once. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I do perceive myself as an intellectual person, and but I can't read a book. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I can't read a book, which I think is just the, my visual processing or whatever. So everyone's like, gosh, you know, so well read and talking about all these <laughs> things and like, you know, like criminal justice. And, and I'm like, I have to watch videos and go on three mile walks and listen to a podcast. Like, oh, I'm going to give you a book. It's, you know, the best novel I've read. I'm like, thank you. I can't read at the beach, but thank you. So yeah, I don't know how to read. <laughs> well, people are, uh, you know, different learning styles, right? Some are kinesthetic, you know, some need to listen to content, some need to watch it, some need, people need to read it, some need, people need to like write it out before they grasp it, so. And people think I'm type A and I have parts of me that are, but I have like a super dirty purse at all times and I don't feel like that goes with Tay. So I can't read and I have a dirty purse. <laughs> well, Kimmy, thank you so much for sharing. I feel like there's a lot of other roads I wanted to go down, but I think I'm really happy with the one we've, we've chosen. Me too. I think your story and your podcast is super inspirational. Definitely going to be queuing it up to binge on several episodes. I think I've made a more conscious effort just to go back and really, really listen to the podcast that I enjoy at 1x, which is really rare for me because normally what I do is everything is 2x. And so I recently deleted over 100 podcast from my podcast player. And I was, I think I'm just trying to be more intentional. So it's no surprise that uh, our paths are, are crossing at this time, because that's the way the universe rolls, exactly. I think. <laughs> so and I love a good podcast to clutter. I'll send you an email with some of my favorites that I think you'll like. So I'll shoot you an email today. Okay, so we'll make sure we have uh, links to the podcast in the show notes. Any other uh, places people can connect with you online? Sure. We're on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcasts, on Facebook at All The Wiser Podcast, and Twitter at All The Wiser Pod. And you can follow me at Kimmy Culp on Instagram. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Take care, Harry. Thanks again to Kimmy for coming on the show. Always appreciated. Special thanks to my good friend, Shelby Stanger, for making the introduction. I'm so happy she did. What a fun conversation. Full show notes are available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 257. And that includes the links I mentioned at the top of the show, links to our clubhouse room, my clubhouse profile, and the bunches.chat app that I'm testing out for community engagement. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlett 2i2 Pro. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Tarika Johnson, host of Blackpacking. That was a connection made through the Podcast Academy. And I'm really glad we got to connect. Fun conversation, especially when you talk about all things travel, which is really a passion of mine. If you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with TV Kimmy. That's T-V-K-I-M-I. And you can tag Kimmy at all the wiser pod, one word, and podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Have a fantastic week.